there's two ways that I think we as hitters compete. We have our internal and our external. So our mm-hmm. internal is against ourselves, like sure. holding ourselves accountable and, and the discipline aspect. And so I think when we talk about internal competition, it's holding ourselves accountable to our process. I think that's the first thing. Are they able to do that on a daily basis? Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. During this episode, I interviewed Peter Fotsey, minor league hitting coordinator for the Minnesota Twins. Peter shares with us a wealth of information about how to execute decision training, but we also get into some different ways to remain competitive during training, the importance of building an adjustable swing, and techniques to implement individualized training for players. This episode is so good, and here is Peter Fotsey. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, I would love to get to know you a little bit better. And we obviously spent about 15 minutes getting to know you, or I was getting to know you a little bit and know that you're a Northeast guy and and how you guys carry a chip on your shoulders. uh, And there's some really good baseball that goes on up there. And so I'd like to know how you decided to get into the game of baseball and, you know, a little bit about your baseball background, if that's okay. Absolutely. Well, yeah. So I'm from the Northeast, uh, from actually from Western Massachusetts. I, I stayed local, went to the University of Connecticut, played for uh, Coach Penders, and had a, a great experience, a great career, met some fantastic people, a lot of people that are uh, still really close in my life now. was fortunate enough to get drafted by the Milwaukee Brewers, played a few years professional baseball, finished in independent baseball. And I think the for me, what really sparked my desire to coach was I got to a point in my career where I was, I was kind of struggling to find an offensive identity. And, um, I would come home in the off-seasons and didn't really have any place to train. So I started, uh, I started actually giving some lessons at a facility that I would, you know, I'd find some time to hit at. And uh, I really enjoyed the process of seeing guys get better. And uh, in turn, that kind of led me to dig a little bit deeper and to kind of learn about myself, you know, objectively the swing itself. And that kind of just transcended into years of, you know, video study, reaching out to, uh, you know, some really good coaches for information, digging in more myself. And the next thing I knew, I started to get more gratification. I was seeing other people have success uh, to the point where I was uh, I was comfortable uh, walking away from uh, continuing to play. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where that's kind of where the game took me, and, and I'm I'm really happy it did. Oh, definitely. And you you and I both mentioned <laughs> before we got started on how we wish we had the information that kids do today because. I would have loved to have at least tried some of the things that we get to try with our kids with, with just different swing philosophies and data. And, and you mentioned that, and you mentioned Tukes helping with that, and you guys both being Northeast guys, which I think is really, really cool. And I mean, it's just, it's amazing that we're taking out a lot of the, the different excuses that kids have to really work on themselves because there's so much information out there. Absolutely. And I think, I think it's one of the things for me that was really, I guess, that really allowed me to kind of continue to dig deeper was just that, you know, I really had a passion for trying to figure some things out. I would say that one thing for me with players, especially at the amateur level, 
prior to my job with uh, the Minnesota Twins, I was working with a lot of amateur hitters in college, high school, professional as well, but is the ownership of the information. You know, I think because we didn't have a lot of, uh, of this information, mm-hmm. you know, it really sparked like a fire to kind of learn as much as I could and to kind of seek out the best quality information. And that's something I always try and resonate to the players is we have a lot of information, but you have to be hungry to apply it and you have to be hungry to, to learn and dig in for yourself because ultimately it's your career. And I think that's as much as we, we continue to push the game forward, continuing to push ownership in that space, I think is really important. Definitely. And you know, you're in pro ball now, but you've gotten the opportunity to work at APA and I'm assuming working with all different kinds of ages with kids. And so I think that that's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners today because we're going to have some guys that are listening from pro ball all the way down to, you know, the grassroots. And let's go ahead and start with the off season. We're approaching it rapidly. And I just want to know, what should our main goals be? And it's kind of a broad question, I know, and I, and I apologize for that. But whenever we're looking at the scope of things, especially with, for the most part, amateur baseball, what would your main goals be for the offseason? And, you know, where, where should we really start? Yeah, that's a great question. I think when we're looking at kind of the amateur baseball landscape, I think, you know, being from the Northeast, I, I kind of have a different lens, given I know the limited amount of time that our players get to work with their own high school coaches. So a lot of the things that are done are typically done privately or with their private clubs, you know, and I think the first thing that I would suggest is having a, or making a realistic evaluation of of your previous year and and really taking the time to look and say, okay, like what, what are the, the attributes that I possess that right now that are strengths for me? And then taking those things and continuing to look to build on them, but also, and, and, and honestly, more importantly, kind of looking at your game and saying, okay, weakness wise, where, where did I struggle? You know, what, what areas of development, you know, do I have to put forth and really being honest with yourself? Because I think a lot of times you know, when hitters come in the off season, you know, I, I'll, the first time I would have a, a young hitter in, I'd say, okay, like, you know, what are your strengths and weaknesses? What are your areas of development? What do you want? Mm-hmm. And that question kind of like, typically you get like this blank stare that's like, well, I'm here. You're supposed to tell me, you know, you're right, supposed to tell exactly. me what, what I need to get better at. And, it's, mm-hmm. and, and I think the reality is if you can make that first step and honestly kind of assess where you're at, and where you want to go, I think that's very important. And obviously that's more of a, you're going to get different answers depending on the maturity of the player, depending on the level, all those sorts of things. But I think that's a really, really important place to start. And then from there, I think it really comes down to having an understanding if we're talking more swing based, you know, like what characteristics you possess from a style perspective, what type of style do you possess from a movement perspective, you know, how well the quality of your movement, how well you, you know, in general, you move, understanding those two things and, and beginning to to put together a plan that can kind of help you, again, maximize your strengths and minimize your weaknesses. Okay, so say that I'm an amateur athlete and I decide to come to you in the offseason and we sit down and you ask me some of those different questions. You ask me what my weaknesses are. You're going to have a lot of different varying levels of, I guess, expertise on what on what that looks like depending on, I mean, I'm sure even pro ball guys have some, really don't have an idea of some of the things that they're doing. I hope that I hope that that's few and far between, but I'm sure that there's different varying levels based on ages and, and whatnot. Are there any questions that you ask them to really get them in a sense of deeper learning or just to get them to just try and understand what, what movements are important and just what would that quest, line of questioning look like? Yes. I mean, I think the first thing that we do, and this is more trying to take some of the subjective information out, you know, a lot of guys don't have a fan graphs page or a, you know, any sort of information like that, you know, obviously at the high school and collegiate level, 
But the first thing I try and do is take out some of the objectivity and we put them at our training center. We used to put players through a movement assessment. Okay. So we would, you know, we'd go through essentially like our, the TPI on base shoe movement uh, protocols. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to have a really good strength coach that worked with me. His name is Joe Hudson. He's with the Boston Red Sox. I think he's got a really bright future ahead of him. Awesome. And what we would do is we'd sit down, we would, he would go through the movement assessment and he had some other um, different testing protocols that he'd put guys through. And essentially like what we do is we'd, we'd look at how the player was moving and then we'd put, bring him in the cage. We were fortunate. We had a hit track. We've been using blast for a while. And we would just set up some bat. We get some basic batted ball information. So we okay. see, you know, exit velocity, how the ball is coming off his bat. You know, we've been fortunate enough to have uh, 4D uh, for the last year and a half at the training center. So we would get a chance to see, you know, their movement qualities. And essentially what we we're trying to do is create a fingerprint for the player. So the first thing we would try and do is kind of pull out uh, as much information that we could gather from the player. And the mm-hmm. second part of that would be asking more questions about like, how was your year last year? How Talk to me about what we were from a, like a damage perspective. Like, how'd you hit the ball last year? We drive, drive the ball over the place. What was your swing and miss like? Did you chase a lot? Did you miss in zone a lot? And we would kind of pry through various questions like that to get a sense of like bat to ball skill and yeah, bat to ball skill, damage and and get a, get a chance to, to kind of hear the hitter talk about their self-interpretation. Like, Mm -hmm. like what type of player do I think I am? And then what we do is we just would take kind of the information. Okay. Well, this is kind of where, and we didn't necessarily share the granular details of this with each guy because you know there's varying levels of comprehension but it's like you know we would say hey like given these sorts of things we think that you know maybe we can get you to here or hey given these attributes and how you move we really think you know over time you may want to consider this and we would just start to kind of individually get a snapshot and then build off of that no i like that a lot and you know after after attending the on base you and in houston this past month it's just it's amazing what some different limitations can do to the you know what we think are the absolutes or even the style of your swing and and that's something that I think that that needs to be talked about more is you know what your body's doing and how that's affecting your swing and and you going through TPI I'm sure that's something that you believe or you started to see as well absolutely and I, I took the TPI course over a year ago and that was something I had on the docket this is before obviously I got hired by the twins and mm-hmm. It was something I was really passionate about. I mean, I'd been following their online database. I've been following their social media accounts for a long time. And, and I just, you know, obviously in golf, you know, the golfer controls a lot more of the input than right. I think a, a hitter does from sure. the perspective like they don't have to react. There's not that reactionary component. Mm-hmm. But I definitely started to see this swing differently, you know, once I started to have a better understanding of just how the body works and, and how the body, how you work to create space and time within the swing and then being able to look and say and identify key characteristics that can contribute to those things, mm-hmm. you start to see patterns emerge. And then from there, you kind of realize that, wow, like a lot of these patterns that keep emerging are pretty consistent with different types of hitters. And I don't want to right. say that, you know, you can nec- you're necessarily bucketing guys, but you can kind of see based on, you know, one thing or the other that like down the road, these are, these movement deficiencies may lead towards this type of result in game, if that makes sense. So you kind of, you can kind of navigate those waters and seeing how a guy moves and then ultimately getting a little bit of objective information on the, on the player. Well, and I'll, you know, throw myself under the bus a little bit is I had a pretty good freshman outfielder who really worked hard on his swing and good pitcher, really good athlete, tall, lanky kid. And we could not figure out a great way to get him on plane longer. So 
we tried lowering his hands, hiring his hands, and a lot of the time he would just kind of get stuck with his hands behind him and not creating very much space. And so mm-hmm. it ended up, it, he would get stuck and it would almost be like a U shape where it's kind of steep, but that's not what he was trying to do and that's not what he was thinking. And after going to on base U and, you know, talking about external rotation with your shoulder and I just, in the middle of one of our games this summer, I went to him, I was like, Hey, let, let's test this and see how far you can get. And it was not very far. And so obviously yep. that's one of those things is we tried for months trying to get him to feel something to get him again on plane and behind the ball longer, but he physically wasn't able to do that. And that, and that's one example of, you know, many that I'm sure that we will run into and that, that we've run into before, mm-hmm. but it just, it gives a little bit of insight on, on some different whys. And obviously some of the different things will be style and some of them will be, mm-hmm. will be like that. Well, there'll be light bulb moments for him. And so we moved his hands a little bit away just to give him a little bit more, <laughs> even more space, just be trying to not get him crunched up behind his body. But that's just a, a, a way of how the body affects a swing. And I think that's why it's important to have a lot of tools in our toolbox like that. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Well, perfect. Well, you also mentioned that obviously golf, you're kind of in a, I don't want to say a, a completely close environment, but you've got a ball sitting on the ground. You're not having to react to anything. And hitting mm-hmm. is, is a little bit different. We have to, we're, we're always in reaction mode. We're always reacting on what the pitcher is doing and pitch that's being thrown. And so I, I love these next two questions because they, they have to involve that. And, and the first one is how do we train an adjustable swing? And, you know, what are you looking for? And give us some practical ways to do that if if you can. Absolutely. Well, that's a really good. I think adjustability is. I mean, it's it's one of, if not the most important characteristics of a good hitter. And we see that, and we see that from professional baseball on down. You know, you mentioned something that you know we were discussing the relation time. And for me, mm-hmm. all elite hitters, you know, when you're looking at how they move or their ability to control their bat to ball skill, create space for themselves essentially to like get their barrel to where they need to go, get their hands where they need to go. And they give themselves the most time to do that. And I think when we talk about just how we create recognition and how we, you know, how we put ourselves in positions to be adjustable, the first piece is understanding that the load, and this is a, a term I borrowed from Bobby Tuchter, but the load is sure. essentially the first part of the swing. Okay. And, I, and I think that's something that has stuck with me for the last nine, eight or nine years okay. since hearing him say that. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is it's, we're creating recognition as we're moving. And I think when, when hitters understand how to control their movement and how they create, how they control their movement and the pitch recognition so that they can basically control themselves, you're basically telling yourself to stop, not telling yourself to swing, and you're understanding how to control yourself to pitch recognition. I think that's like the most important part. And, you know, we spend a lot of time, or I know I used to spend a ton of time focusing on the swing itself and was missing key attributes and components of Hey, like, how does this pertain to pitch recognition? Like, mm-hmm. do you, you know, understanding how the body's supposed to work into pitch recognition. So I find that as I work through discussing swing mechanics or discussing swing characteristics, I'm always constantly revisiting how does this help you or how does this reinforce seeing the ball properly? And there's a lot of great people with great information out there. Dr. Peter Fatty's got some tremendous information out there with respect to recognition and ball flight tendencies and all those sorts of things. And I think like, being able to couple those two things is very, very important. So from like a drill perspective, I mean, there's, there's so many different things you can do to train adjustability. I like to do things where I, I force guys to what I call the transition. So whether you're a leg lift guy or a toe touch, when you begin to make your forward move 
know, your hands are working up and back, the barrel's beginning to create some depth, and you're working into, you know, that lead foot plant. I like to do a lot of drills that reinforce seeing the ball through that window. So whether it's having guys add in a leg lift or, you know, we do the Bellinger drill, you know, whether mm-hmm. guys have their feet together and they're working through that transition, coupling that with recognition drills, you know, giving them a focal point has been really, really impactful because it's always reinforcing those two skills, which I think are very, very important. Definitely. I like that a lot. I also like that it's now the Bellinger drill and not the Babe Ruth drill, just because Bellinger That's is it. having such a great year. <laughs> yes. The Babe Ruth drill, we, we did we did for a while and it was uh, obviously with the lower hand. I think the kids resonate towards Bellinger a little bit right now. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. And I like that a lot. And, and you also, you talked about obviously body swing connection and, and that does affect our vision and our pitch recognition based on just our general stance and our how we're setting up. And what are some different ways that you guys train decision training? I mean, you're seeing almost up to 50% off-speed pitches in pro ball in the big leagues now. And so it's literally a coin flip on whether or not you're going to get a fastball or an off-speed pitch. So what are some different ways that you guys train that decision from one to the other? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I can kind of paint the best picture in the statement you just mentioned. I mean, seeing mm-hmm. more breaking balls in general, I think that a lot of times when you just consider how we've trained for so long, it's always been off. It's always been off the fastball and fastball timing, which is extremely important. And that's not something we should necessarily deviate from. Mm-hmm. But I think creating opportunities for guys to see more breaking balls, whether that's standing in, whether that's setting up the breaking ball machine and varying, like varying heights or locations. I think those are, those are really good ways to paint realistic or to paint the most realistic picture of a breaking ball that you can, I think has some transferability there. Mm-hmm. But again, I go back to the point of, you know, if I just sit there and, and drop baseballs into the uh, curveball machine and I'm, you know, I see six or seven sliders, I might, I might get better at hitting that pitch. Right. I might alter my timing because I know the slider's coming. Sure. But that's why I think the education of how you create your timing window and how you keep that open as long as possible and understanding how you move for the ball, that part of the education is vital to seeing transferability. Like if guys don't understand how they're moving or why they're like, Hey, why am I cutting myself down on this? Why is my bat path cutting across my body on the slider? Mm-hmm. You know, and why do I feel like my hands are just kind of racing forward? You know, if they don't have an understanding or they have, they don't have those building blocks established, mm-hmm. like in how to create proper uh, hand path, barrel path, like to me, then almost doing those drills, it's just, you're just in a closed loop and you just keep going through it and through it and through it. And you're, you're not really like retaining as much so I think like the education you can, like, is super important there when you're when we're when we're developing those skills. I'm right there with you, and you know from from an amateur perspective, I think a lot of guys, one, they don't recognize it early enough, and so that's one of several different problems that we <laughs> that we're going to run into here. But another one is is they don't really get into a great position to hit whenever they do get their foot down. So. A lot of guys either, and this could be one of both because they either don't recognize it and get into a hip extension early and, and they, so they, they start to lock out their front leg or they don't get mm-hmm. into a good enough position to be able to kind of sink and create that extra time that you're talking about, at least with the lower half. I know you mentioned with the, with bat path, but those are also two things that, and something that I've been trying to figure out is the chicken or the egg, you know, I mean, it's, it's one of those that. All three of those that we just mentioned are reasons why I think that obviously you can't hit a curveball and you've got to be able to see it. You've got to be able to recognize it. You've got to be able to adjust to it and then you've got to hit it. And that's not easy to do. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a very, I mean, it is, it's, 
And then you're coupling that with the fact that, you know, I still have to see this guy's in high school, 88, you know, 86, 88 mile per hour fastball. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, I think that, you know, you brought up a really good point about the lower body and, the, and, you know, essentially, you know, I was talking more bat path and you kind of mentioned the lower body piece. And, you know, I think at the amateur level, the thing that I notice a lot with young hitters is they don't use the ground particularly well. Absolutely. A lot don't, especially like you see guys that have, I don't want to say they get really good at like drilling, but they get really good at like doing certain drills and, and moving specific ways, like to like, you know, the, or at least like firing the back knee to the ground. And they get really good at doing those sorts of things, but they're never, they never have engaged, they haven't really engaged the ground. You know, they're not using, you know, they're not using the trail leg really well to create strong support. They're not using the front leg well to brace. And like that leads to a whole host of issues. You know, I think some of the reasons why I generate, I look towards that path initially is, I've seen some guys, you know, you can see some guys that don't have super unbelievable lower halves or that may be off balance, slightly leaking forward. Mm-hmm. But if your upper body's in a position to create like good depth and adjustability and barrel path is there, sure. there's still an opportunity. Whereas like if your lower body is excellent and your upper body is, you don't have a really good barrel path and you don't have control of the upper right. body necessarily, 100%. it's really hard to hit. So I think a lot of it is, I mean, it's definitely, both of those are extremely important, but that's why I kind of default to looking towards, okay, yeah, we want to, we want to have an understanding of what the lower body is doing. Mm-hmm. We also want to have an understanding of, you know, what, what the bat path or swing characteristics are in that sense. Well, and couple that with, you say 86 to 88 for amateur level, and you're seeing 96 to 98 with tunnel yeah. 92 mile an hour sliders. And man, it's, oh. it's just, I don't know how people hit. Like, I'm just like, you know, <laughs> it, and people talking about, the why strikeouts are up. And then I go watch pitching Ninja for about five minutes and I just, I quit all over again. I just retire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's funny. It's funny. You said that Justin Willard and I, I know you just had him on your podcast. You talk about that pretty mm-hmm. frequently, you know, just in general, like the odds are against you as a hitter. And I think that's one of the things for us, which we try to embrace. And, uh, you know, our processes need to reflect that. What are the core beliefs that we're after? You know, like what are the, you know, we want to hit the ball hard. We want to hit the ball good angles. Like if our, if our concentration focus is, if we can minimize some of the clutter and focus on the things that produce long-term results, I think that's the best way to go about it. Because pitching is, it is so darn good right now, but we have to find a way to combat it. Right. And and I think, you know, obviously runs are up this year, so pitchers can't stay ahead for too long. We're going to figure out a way to, to beat those guys. And, uh-huh. you know, we're, so we're in, in the part of the season to where it's probably getting to a little bit of a grind. And I, I know it's a job for you guys. And I know that they're, they're trying to move up a level and they're trying to become the best baseball players that they could possibly be. But something that I always love to do this time of year, and, and it's different times of year for you as a, as a guy in pro ball and me for a, you know as, as an amateur high school coach. And I love to integrate competition anytime that I possibly can, just because it heightens awareness. It helps them just be deliberate with what they're doing. And everyone loves to compete. And I know that this is true from 40-year-old retired baseball players all the way down to youth league level baseball players. We all love to compete. We're all you know, just competitive animals. And if you're a baseball player, you've got that innate. So what are some different ways that you guys like to compete in your training sessions? For sure. And I think you touched on two big things. When I, when I think about competitive design, I think of two, there's two ways that I think we as hitters compete. We have our internal and our external. So our Mm -hmm. internal is against ourselves, like holding ourselves accountable and, and the discipline aspect. I think in professional baseball, it transcends all levels, but I think in professional baseball, given all the things you mentioned, the, you know, the, the amount of games you play, the travel, it gets very easy to kind of find yourself coasting for five to six days at a time because, you know, the, the games keep piling up. 
you got rainouts, you got bus travel, and it just becomes, again, this loop. And so I think when we talk about internal competition, it's holding ourselves accountable to our processes. I think that's the first thing. So when we're talking about that, if a player has a specific lead-up process or they have a specific drill focus, so there's you know, something that we've identified or isolated that's like very important to their overall process, like do they have the mental discipline? Are they internally able to control? Are they able to do that on a daily basis mm-hmm. and not lose focus? I think the external piece is competing against other people or you know, whether that's somebody on their team, whether that's an additional opponent. And yeah, I mean, I think our guys, everybody loves competition, whether it's ping pong in the locker room, you know, whether it's fungo golf, something, these guys like to compete. Mm -hmm. And I think that in practice, you know, just to give you guys like a a basic snapshot, I think something as simple as understanding how hard you're, how well you're impacting the ball. I think, you know, when you give guys an opportunity, whether it's a recognition drill, Hey, you know, we used to do something at the university of Connecticut where, and we did a lot with uh, different colored baseballs. If you swung it, you know, the color you weren't supposed to, you had five push-ups, And we would just kind of continuously keep track of those things. So I was doing that drill with you know, Nick Ahmed, George Springer, Michael, like, and we, and, you know, as an, or, as a team at UConn, I think that was our, our biggest asset is we were competitors in the weight room, in the cages. And that was just something that transcended onto the field. So again, I think something as simple as when we were practicing in the cages, I can remember Coach Malinowski, who's not at the University of Hartford, he'd be throwing us these dot, these dotted balls. And basically, like, if you swung at a red one, you know, like you were, you had five push-ups, And sure. we would just continually monitor those sorts of things. And it's simple. I mean, it's a very simple way to control accountability because you either, you either swung at the red ball or you did not swing at the red ball. And then from there, you layer it to, okay, well, like, how was the contact when you hit the ball? Did you drive the ball or did you kind of you hit a little backside squibber, like, you know, off the end of the bat? And then we'd start to evaluate ourselves in the quality of contact. So, I think when you layer those things together, you know, you start to see like, okay, we're working on some pitch recognition skill. Now we're working on impacting the ball. Now we're evaluating ourselves. Now we're comparing ourselves to other people that are doing the same drill. And I think like when you layer it that way, you know, you find the best competitive nature in people or players, excuse me. Oh, definitely. And again, it's, it's always great to break up the monotony of the long season with some different, you know, games and competitions and just some stuff that I get you're not say you throw colored baseballs in there you're not doing anything different you're just again you're heightening awareness to what the intended goal is going to be so i'm always looking for different things to do with that and and i really like that a lot and so let's let's talk about what we should be paying attention to in video because you you know you get to see a ton of different players with different swings and let's say you've gone through your questioning and and you've gotten to you've gotten to see them at least as far as what their statistics are. And so you've kind of got that out of the way and you're trying to break down a swing with them. What are some different things that you look for that, you know, may not be absolutes, but are kind of your bias of, hey, this is what a lot of really good players do. And, you know, I think there's a couple of blogs on your website that that are really good, but I just want to know, you know, we all have our slight biases of what we see and what we think that most good guys do and and again there's always going to be one or two outliers that that always prove us wrong but what are some different things that you're looking for yeah absolutely and this is kind of you know like you'd said uh, Jonathan this is a this is a very there's multiple directions you can go with this and I mm-hmm. think one thing I've learned having been around some really really good baseball people is our eyes will always go where we want them to go it was something I right. you know, have it written down in my coaching journal like our eyes will go where we want them to go so if I if I always like to concentrate on what my back leg does my eyes directly go there. If I want to look at, you know, the pivot point of my hands and how the barrel accelerates around my hands, my eyes are going to go there. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of those things that, from like a coaching perspective that I've really had to reflect on is trying to 
trying to remove the, the biases that I have mm-hmm. and create, like when I look at video, create as much objectivity as I can. And that's just something, you know, I think as an evolution, that's something that I've continuously had to work on getting better at throughout the course of my career. But if I were to name a couple of things just to, I think that like how the barrel works around the hands is one of the most important things that I look for initially, just because that tells me a lot about the ability to create bat pass, you know, is how the barrel and, and more specifically how that player like creates bat pass, you know, are they more vertical? Do they get to a more flat or horizontal position? Are they able to accelerate the barrel deep? How do the inner player, the hands, like how are the hands, you know, controlling what the barrel does? Because I think a lot of when you look at, you know, and again, handedness, you know, right hand dominant, left hand dominant, are they left hand hitter, are they right hand hitter? I think that all comes into effect. But I think like something that really resonated with me was I was in my last year playing and I got with a uh, one of my teammates and he had he had me start doing top hand work or I was watching him doing top hand work. And when I was in college, we do one hand work all the time. And my bottom hand, I'm a left hand hitter, right hand dominant, my bottom hand. I would hammer balls mm-hmm. and then I get to my top hand and I would just be pushing my top hand down across my body. Right. Just, you know, absolutely cutting balls in half, jamming myself. And my mentality at that point was like, you know, this is silly. Like I don't need to hit with one hand. So why am I going to continue to train top hand pass? Like, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't understand why this is important. And then fast forward into 2012, my last year playing, I got with a guy who was doing exclusive one hand work and he started to actually reference to me the importance of, yeah, I got to feel my barrel set, you know, I got to work above my hands. I got to feel the barrel work around my hands. And when he started to talk to me about that, you know, I, I started to to really think about, wow, like, you know, the reason why, you know, I had some inconsistencies in my bat path, being inconsistencies with direction at times, like I didn't really have any top hand control. Mm-hmm. So that's what really like kind of started to get my lens going into kind of how the barrel interplays with the hands and creates depth around and, and works around the hands. Because ultimately as hitters, our hands control the barrel, but we don't hit the ball with our hands. We have right. to control the direction of the bat. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the lead-up progressions I like to do, like they involve that. So that's where my eyes go uh, with the upper body, and then with the lower body, I'm always looking to see the relationship between the pelvis and the rib cage. And that's just a lot of the things that I've looked at in terms of posture and anterior core strength and how that impacts your ability to load. Like that's where my that's kind of where my eyes go. And again, you know. So I kind of look at those things equally and then uh, begin to factor in components of, you know, style. Like, does a guy have a leg lift? Does he have a toe mm-hmm. touch? Does he, you know, does he have, does he have a little bit of a hand tip or does he, does he rock or how, you know, what's the interplay there look like? So I would say those two areas specifically for me are where I, where I kind of put most of my focus in video. Sure. You know, I, I was always a righty righty guy. And so I, I, I always wanted to hit lefty. It's really hard to do so, but it's something that's come to my attention over the last probably a year or two that even righty lefty guys, they have to work hard. I mean, you think about, mm-hmm. you think about the whole right side of your body. I had a slight advantage because that was my strong side. It was, you know, the back side of my body. And then you turn them around and you're righty left, righty lefty. And that's your weak side. So you're talking about getting into the ground, not only with your weak side, but you're also talking about your bat path with your weak side. And that, that's something that righty lefty guys have to work really hard on. So it's, it's really, it's good that you have that perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, and it completely changed. You know, I always identified early on, I identified the barrel path issues like I always had, but I never could figure out specifically why until I kind of just looked at how my hands were working with the barrel and, and where each was creating control. And I think that's something that I notice a lot, you know, when I have guys in or I'd have guys in the training center. One of the first questions I'd ask is like, do you, you know, are you right-handed or left-handed? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times, like, you, you know, the drill packages, 
from like a bat path perspective would change like depending on their dominant hand and then ultimately how the how the barrel created kind of like early acceleration like if they were good at it or if they lost the barrel you know a lot of control issues there so there's a lot you can dig into in that side but Mm -hmm. uh you know that's just kind of like the starting point for me so i'll get on these tangents where i'm slightly obsessive (laughs) and it's it's after really starting to feel around with that i've started to notice how many guys that you can pick out that are just so front arm dominant that you can be like, yeah, that, that guy is definitely a righty lefty guy just because their, their front mm-hmm. arm takes over so much. And just by seeing them on video with most, and it's mostly left-handed swings, there's not a, a ton with the curse of lefty thrower, righty hitter, but you can just, right. you can just tell that their bottom hand or their front arm and it's just, it takes over in a lot of the, a lot of the swing. And so that's something that, that I've really started to pay attention to a lot lately and something that we have a lot of guys who want to do that, but they do have to work, you know, fairly hard to be able to overcome that. And it's always good to be for pitch recognition and curveballs coming into you, but you also have to work on getting really good with your non-dominant side being your backside and your driving force. But let's talk a little bit about, you know, individual development within the team setting and within mm-hmm. pro ball, because you you may have a guy for a month, you may have a guy for three months, you may have a guy for three years. And you know, for me, it's it's looking at the broad picture because for the most part, I know that they're going to be there for four years. So trying to project them out and, and to come up with a plan that maximizes their individual development within the team setting, within still trying to win as many games as possible, but also developing them as well as possible. And so what's your advice on how we can start to put in some different pieces? Because you don't have a lot of time to train. And you don't probably mm-hmm. have a lot of time to sit down with every single guy and say, listen, this is what we're going to do. This is this is how it's going to go. This is, you know, get some feedback from them and whatnot. But I just want to know, especially this being your first year doing it, what, what does that look like? And what's your advice on how we can do that? For sure, for sure. And obviously, you know, I think at the professional level, the biggest difference has been, and, and, ha- and obviously having done it in the private sector, working with guys, you know, in that, or that realm, you know, I'd have guys, that would come to the training center and we could block out an hour, two hours a day for three, four, you know, we'd have guys fly in for three, four days. And it's like, okay, you know, we're able to work with a guy extensively, really dig in. But areas that I would lack in that instance were like a lot of objective information about their batted balls, right? Mm-hmm. Like what types of batted balls, they, like how, you know, what type of contact do they make? You know, I could, I could pull basic information off of it was, if it was a college player, you know, their website or, but I think being able to utilize, batted ball information to create a plan is very important because the ball ultimately is going to give us the best depiction of like what is happening, you know, sure. like, you know, the body moves and the body controls how the barrel works. And then the barrel ultimately impacts the ball, which gives us a result. So being able to look at batted ball information is, is kind of critical for me. So I would say in the private sector, it, like it's really tough because if you don't have a hit tracks or a rap set or something of that nature to track, like to track it in training, you, know, you have to create a more subjective opinion so you have like this guy has a tendency every time i start to go inside on him he just cuts himself down works across the ball mm-hmm. you know if you have angle or if you have a like launch angle rope in your cages like this guy is continuously under the 15 degree mark on balls inside and then okay now you know i go away and man this guy is like he's hitting a lot of balls weekly to the top right side of the cage like to me those types of inconsistencies you can use and say okay you know it's a bat path issue and we got to really look at our bat path here and and try and figure out, you know, how can we create better length? And depending on how the guy moves or depending on the swing characteristics, you can make an adjustment from that. Sure. I would say in professional baseball, we just, we have such a, a fantastic group of, of, um, or we have a fantastic team, you know, fantastic group of, 
analysts and, you know, baseball development people that, mm-hmm. you know, we're constantly discussing, you know, our players. And that's one thing that I've, that I've felt immediately since joining the twins is every player's career is extremely important, uh, especially to myself and the, the rest of the staff. So we, we do the best we can. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it really is. And I say that being a guy that like professional baseball, I was 24th round pick. I was a guy that was just kind of, you know, a filler player. And so I try and carry that with me every time I'm with, you know, when I'm in the cage, I was in the cage, the high school player, I'm in a, you know, with first round draft pick, you know, just trying to understand like, this is this guy's career. So we do take a lot of pride in the individuality component and creating a roadmap for each guy. And I think the communication amongst our coaches is very important to making sure those things come to fruition every day. And then we have, you know, and then you work through uh, a variety of checkpoints. And I think that's ultimately something if I were on the amateur side that I would look for. And again, taking out information that you can get from Rapsodo or Blast or Hit Tracks or something like that. If you kind of create, you know, like I said, in the cage environment, if you're just monitoring, you know, point of contact, contact on the horizontally across the plate, you know, how does this guy cover pitches in? How does he cover pitches middle, middle away? How does he cover pitches up? How does he cover pitches down? Mm -hmm. And if you can subject, even if you subjectively are just grading like a one through five, like, okay, this guy hit four out of five balls hard with some carry to the pull side on balls inside. I go away, man, this guy was yanking four out of five balls on the ground of the pull side. You know, up. This guy is you know, he's consistently missing under, down. He does a pretty good job hitting the ball down. That that's gonna give you some information on the bat path. Mm-hmm. Again, depending on if you have a machine or if you have live arm, you know, the way you want to test that I think is gonna be individualized given the, the equipment that you have. Mm-hmm. But that's a very simple way to use batted ball information to help you build a picture for um, your hitters because ultimately the ball is the best feedback in that in that instance. That's just my opinion. No, I like that a lot, and I think that that also, once you get that information, that helps them to have a plan or approach whenever they do start to take some in-game swings. And obviously, in the middle of the season, that's that's really a lot of of what that goes into. Is you know, you're seeing trends and you're seeing all of that different stuff. And does that? Well, let me just ask you: Does that help with having and discussing an approach with the player? Yeah, absolutely. I think when when you're talking about designing an approach for a guy, it's ultimately understanding two things for one it's it's a it's knowing what you do and what you bring to the table and what strengths you have i think is very important and then the other the second piece is, is the opposition and understanding okay like i may not have a scouting report but if i'm watching the game and i'm paying attention i'm talking to my teammates in the dugout you know what's the curveball look like man like i noticed he doesn't have a fastball command or the catcher's really the catcher's setting up inside the righties but he's missing all over the place glove side like having those conversations in the dugout and then saying, okay, like I know this, this is kind of how he's attacking, you know, maybe a, a player in my lineup that's similar to me. You know, I've noticed these tendencies. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to look for this and this and try and keep those. And I'm going to stay disciplined for looking in, in this window. I think that's really, really important. And if you understand kind of where you handle the ball well in the zone and, you know, obviously the goal is to continue to expand to that zone. I think that's how you begin to develop, you know, an approach, especially again, I'm, I'm you know, referencing more of the amateur level, but that's how you really begin to develop an approach is understanding what you do well and then how the opposition is trying to attack you. Definitely. I like that. And does that go into taking both of those into account? Does that go into what a pregame would look like? Because this is me uh, again, I've gotten the opportunity to be around some different pro teams before they started and, or at least before on game day, because it seems like literally every day is game day. So 
going into their pregame, and that's really a, a, an area that you can use to develop. And that's really one of the only times that you have during the season to be able to do so. So what does what does a good pregame look like, and you know how do you help them to understand that you're not only getting ready for a game, but we're also trying to stack that with some different things that we want to do to continue to develop in season. Absolutely, you know I think the first kind of variable to that, and, and arguably probably the most impactful, is the type of information you have about your opposition. So depending on what you know, you know if you're a college program, you're likely to have a a reasonably deep scouting report, you probably have some experience against the guy. Maybe there's some experience against the opposition from like a coaching perspective, how they like to attack hitters. You know, I remember when I was at uh, University of Connecticut, we played West Virginia, and in, uh, I think it was 3-0 and 3-1 counts, it was 100% breaking ball. You know, something like that. I mean, granted, that's a very, it's one example, but I mean, like something that was like, hey, these guys are 100% at 3-0 and we have to be prepared at the breaking ball. So what do we do? We would mix in some breaking ball. I think it's something as simple as you know, if you're facing a lefty that day and you have a guy on your staff that can throw left-handed batting practice, do left-handed batting practice that day. Get your lefties an additional look. Or if you don't have a lefty that day, maybe do some angle defense. So you're trying to work on the angle the ball is coming in because obviously that's really impactful for how we see the ball and then ultimately our point of contact. But I think the goal is is, is you're always we're always trying to get the best in-game results you can. In our, and it's no surprise, it's, it's in our game it's very difficult. It's not like every single day we can go out there and have 30 live at bats to prepare us necessarily for, for the starter we're facing. So what we have to do in practice is create an, an environment where you're building or you're layering some stress to ultimately give you the best chance to prepare for that day. And the more we can replicate those conditions, I think the better, you know, that's well, you know, obviously there's a lot of people in baseball now that are, that have you know, completely redesigned the way they approach practice. Sure. And I also think that what's very important is having an element of, of control. So, you know, in our lead up progression, you know, in our early work, like getting the hitter to a place where, you know, something we had talked about previously, here's the things, here's the internal competition I'm going through today. Like I need to hold myself accountable for two rounds of top hand work, one round of offside overhand flips and one round of mixed fastball curveball overhand flips before I get to BP. Now, that's my routine. I got to hold myself accountable for that. And then from there kind of continue to layer on stress. And, and again, if it's something like simulated, at bats or if it's machine work before the game, that's completely individualized to the, uh, to the team and what you have access to. But I think you want to look to kind of layer on the stress so that when the guys get to the game, the idea is more about execution and they're not, sure. they're not worried about being prepared anymore. They're, they're thinking about execution. Right. No, I, I like that a lot. And, and thank you for going into some different details and, and giving a look inside because it seems like it is individualized for the person to get ready for the game. But you also, again, it, it's the compound effect of if we can get a little bit better every single day of the season, how much better are we going to be at the end of the season versus when we started in spring training or in from the high school setting when we start in December or January, how much better are you going to be in May than you were then? And I mean, and that's the hope. And if we can put together a good plan with the player, then obviously that's going to happen, you know, just taking into account everything that we can control. But I've got a couple of quick hitters for you and... Yeah. The first one is you, you're a guy that's obviously very bright and very well educated, and you're. It seems like you're very on top of learning. So, what is something that you've learned lately that's that's gotten you really excited? Oh man, something I've really learned lately that has gotten me excited. I mean, to be quite honest with you, I feel like I learn something every single day from the people I'm around. I, if I were to say, not, I can't get into too too many specifics on this, but the information I've learned about kind of player evaluation and analyzing some of the key statistics that we look at 
and how that how that paints an overall picture uh, to a player's offensive you know production. I think is really really unique for me. Just learning how those some things kind of uh, interrelate with one another because I think that helps us on the development side. If ultimately we have a really good understanding of how our players are being evaluated, I think that to me is like that kind of fuels the development process because our goal is to we can really focus our goals on areas very specific areas to that player um, and then specific areas to like things that we value as an organization. So again, I can't get into crazy specifics on that, but sure. I think that that's been where my attention has been is helping guys kind of paint the most realistic and, and have an understanding of where they are and then ultimately where they want to go based on some of those pieces of uh, analytical information. I like that. And next one is what is something that you guys do in training that your players love? Ooh, players love. I'll tell you what, I think it's a, it's some of the things that I've seen with like some of our younger players in general, it's just, you know, they love challenging each other on, you know, using rap though. I think it, it just, it provides some really good feedback. The guys love to challenge each other, challenge each other. Again, it's, it's, it's not subjective hard hit. It's like, Hey, did I hit the ball harder than you guys like that? And obviously, you know, depending on the physicality of the guy or the drill we're trying to do, we may say, Hey, it's not about necessarily, you know, player X, who's a five foot ten middle infielder and hitting the ball harder than our first baseman who has 30 homers this year. It's more about how consistent can you stay within your window and your range that we're looking for. And, and do you have the control to keep the ball in a certain, certain range or window, like from a launch angle perspective. But again, like, like guys love seeing numbers and they like, they, I don't know, that's, that's like a visual stimulus, but they just really like the ability to do that and compete with one another. Definitely, definitely. It goes back to, you know, we're all baseball players, so we're all very fairly competitive. And obviously, if you're not, you weren't very good. I'm just going to throw that out there. The second <laughs> or the third question is, what is something that you believe that other coaches may disagree with you about? Oh, man, that's a good question. I don't even really know where to start with that. I would say, like, the one thing for me from a belief perspective is I firmly operate under the Ray, the Ray Dalio uh, principle of, I use the term, I know nothing a lot. I used it in a, in a talk I gave few few months back. I think that the reason why I say that is I think that there's so many different ways that, that we can look at things. And, and obviously, you know, there's a variety of different opinions when it comes to the swing and the most efficient way of doing things. I honestly can tell you that the thing that I've tried to embrace is, is really learning from a bunch of different people and trying to create my own view based off of their information. And I would say like, I openly do not would never just say blatantly, you know, that's wrong and that doesn't work. Even, you know, even some of the cues you still hear that kind of you, you scratch your head. Mm -hmm. I'm always trying to figure out the, inter this, the interpretation of like what they're trying to say. And then ultimately, you know, it's my job to meet them where they're at. So I honestly don't think that I openly just flat out disagree with anybody. And, and I, I don't necessarily know if there's anything specific that I would say that someone would openly disagree with me. I don't know. That's just kind of, that's just kind of where my, where my lens is. Sure, sure. It's it's a really tough question to answer. It and my wife and I. There's this website who who does table topic questions, and they're just questions that are better than how's your day or what'd you do today <laughs> and things like that. So yeah. they're really thought provoking. And that was something that that came up the other day of what is something that you believe that other people make. And I was like, that is a perfect one for coaches because That's we all a really good question. We all have right, and we all have biases, and we all have things that data may not back this up, but this has been our experience with this. And especially at the amateur level, it's so random and we, we just don't have enough data or a, enough uh, sample size to be able to say definitively on some different things that, no, this is 100% true. And 
I really like that one, and I've gotten some really good responses, and yours was obviously very good as well. The next one, and this is, let me let me kind of paint the picture. So say you're working with a player, or this is pregame, or, well, I'm going to let you choose. This could be the offseason, but you're, you're working with a player with his swing or with some different things, and you can kind of choose where you want to go with this. But what would be three things that we would notice whenever you are working with said player? Well, any, anything you would notice, I would say the first is a lot of questions. Okay. I, that's the first thing I say to any new player is please don't take this personally, but I'm going to ask you a ton of questions because it's, again, it's my job to meet you where you are and I need to be able to speak your language and understand what you value. So that'd be the first thing. And that's pretty notable. Anytime I'm around anybody as I, or hitters wise, as I ask a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. The second thing would be an over, I would say the, from like a, if you were to watch me work with somebody, I talk a lot of about controlling the gather and that's just something in just how guys begin to store energy, how guys start to get in position to like use their, use their hips, how they load their, you know, how they're working, their hands are working in conjunction with that. You know, I really take a lot of time and, and get guys to understand how they get into position to see the ball. And then the third thing is I really like to enjoy the process and I really like to let my guys know when they're doing a good job because this game is very, very, very tough, uh, especially on the offensive side. I mean, it's a very tough game to play. So when guys are doing what we're, they're working towards a goal or they're doing something we're asking of them and they're succeeding, I like to let them know you're doing a very, very good job. Like you're really working hard. We really appreciate that. You're doing Mm -hmm. like, that's awesome. You see how the ball came off your bat there. Like, I think continuing to put that in the minds of the hitters just reinforces that like there's a belief in them. And then ultimately that we care about their career. And that's like what, you know, that's why I'm in this is because I, you know, it's a people business as much as a baseball business. So I think that's really important. Right. No, I, I like that. And to your third point. So I was reading an art, a medical journal the other day, and I am going to teach psychology this fall. So I've been trying to brush up on some different things and, one of them was most of the time, and this is just a summation of what the article was about, but most of the time we say things when negative, and it's not necessarily negative feedback, but it's when something negative happens, we try and correct the negative action rather than correct it or reinforcing the positive action that just happened. And so they, they tried three different control groups. One of them was with positive. One of them was not saying anything. And then the third one was trying to correct it when something negative happened. And it turns out that after doing it with the positive, like the positive reinforcement, when good things happen, not only did the player learn more, but they actually got better. And so that's something that I've been really, I'm trying to be conscious about it because I feel like we as coaches, we use usually do that more than we think that we do. We're wanting to help the player. And so when we see something wrong, we want to help them correct that. But then we forget to reinforce that whenever we see it and they do it well, if that makes sense. Oh, 1000%. A little trick I used to do with some of my younger players was if I had a, I'm throwing an age range out there, but let's say it's like 13 to 16. And this applies for as long as you play the game. But, you know, how many times you get in the cage and you watch a guy working through something, they miss hit a ball and you see the mm-hmm. frustration hit their face. They may kind of like mumble under their breath, like, oh, shoot, you know, like you can see them get visually fl- frustrated. If guys were like overly negative. I would yeah. always tell them, well, if you're going to, like, if you're going to be that negative and you're going to really like, you're really going to beat yourself up that much every time you make a mistake, then I want you to be overly positive every time you do something good. And it was really funny because it was like, I made them like give themselves like an attaboy, like verbally. And that you could see a guy, a guy that look around, like, why is this guy cheering for himself right now? But it was more to the point, like you're sitting here and all your, 
focusing on is the things that are not going well or when you do not produce the result you want, but you're not, you know, you're not taking into account the, the positive side of what you're trying to build on. And I think like that's something that when, again, you look at how difficult our game is, if you just consistently beat yourself up over the negative attributes, like this is a tough game to play. So I, there's a little thing I used to do with some of the younger guys and it was, it always got, it always kind of gave me a little chuckle because they never really could understand like, wait a second. Like, well, I guess I don't really know why I'm not like patting myself on the back every time I do something good, but I'm beating myself up every time I do something poorly. I just it didn't make any sense. So it was pretty funny. Definitely. No, I'm right there with you. And that's something that I'm continuing to work on for sure. And last question before we wrap up our conversation is what are some of your different favorite books or resources that you have either shaped your coaching career or you'd like to share with the rest of our listeners? Sure. I mean, I, I think the last year I really delved into just a bunch of different learning opportunities. Like I'm currently taking a biomechanics course online. It's pretty dense, but I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed Supple Leopard by Kelly Threat. Just some of the, the movement priorities and principles. It got me to see things in a different light in terms of prioritizing posture and positioning, and hence why I really focus on how our body organizes itself to like then go achieve the intended task. Like that was a book that really started to kind of get me to dig a little bit deeper. I've, I'm trying to think of something else. I just finished a book, The Power of Habit by Charles Kampfhaus's last name. I think it's Duhigg. It was a really good book in understanding how we create the, the loop, the habit building loop and understanding how if we, you know, if we're looking for a desired result, we have to understand, you know, ultimately what that individual is, is you know, what reinforces the habit and how we can continuously build those habit loops. And I think that directly applies to, to hitters. And again, like I've, I've been a frequent, you know, I'm frequently online. You know, I, I really appreciate you know, the work done by Justin Stone and things that he puts out online. Guys like that. I mean, I'm always continuously learning. So there's a, there's a bevy of information out there. I love that. And if, you know, obviously that, that comes through with your conversation that we've been having the last hour of your continuing to grow yourself and, and in turn growing your players and growing the game. But if our listeners would like to get in touch with you, what would be the best way to do so? Absolutely. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Fatsy Baseball. Okay. I've been a little bit dormant with being with the Twins. Kind of, I have not put out as much, uh, obviously, baseball content, and uh, that's been something, obviously, a little bit more intentional of late. But um, I also have a website, FatsyBaseball.com. Fatsy it's just got some articles that I wrote prior to uh, joining the Twins. And if anybody has any questions, don't hesitate to reach out to me personally. Well, I love it. Well, I'm going to open up the mic for you before you go. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners? No, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you guys tuning in, Jonathan. I appreciate you having me on. Hope uh, I was able to shed some light. And um, you know, I'm looking forward to uh, the continuous growth of our game. Thank you very much for all that you do. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which could include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.